I invite you to turn with me to Ezra chapter 7 today. Those of you who are joining us may be for the first time. We're in the middle of a series in this book in the Bible. You can find it on page 393 in the Blue Bibles. We'll read all of Ezra 7 uh, today. And trust the Lord is able to take events that happened so long ago and a book written so long ago and make it come alive to us and uh, become real to us in such a way where, where we meet with God through his word. That's what we do Sunday by Sunday here. And you think about it, it's a peculiar thing, isn't it? All these people sitting here, opening up one passage of the scripture, focusing on that one text. But it's a wonderfully peculiar thing. And we believe that uh, it's not just peculiar, it's, it's powerful that the Lord's word is living and active and could do a miraculous work in us today. Let's, let's uh, pray as I read this that he would do that. This is God's word. Now after this, in the reign of Artaxerxes, king of Persia, Ezra, the son of Seraiah, the son of Azariah, the son of Hilkiah, the son of Shalom, the son of Zadok, the son of Ahitub, the son of Amariah, the son of Azariah, the son of Merioth, the son of Zeruiah, the son of Uzi, son of Buki, son of Abishua, the son of Phinehas, son of Eleazar, son of Aaron, the chief priest. This Ezra went up from Babylonia. He was a scribe skilled in the law of Moses that the Lord, the God of Israel, had given. And the king granted him all that he asked, for the hand of the Lord his God was on him. And there went up also to Jerusalem in the seventh year of Artaxerxes king, some of the people of Israel and some of the priests and Levites, the singers and the gatekeepers and the temple servants. And Ezra came to Jerusalem in the fifth month, which was in the seventh year of the king. For on the first day of the first month, he began to go up from Babylonia. And on the first day of the fifth month, he came to Jerusalem. For the good hand of his God was on him. For Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. This is a copy of the letter that King Artaxerxes gave to Ezra the priest, the scribe, a man learned in matters of the commandments of the Lord and his statutes for Israel. Artaxerxes, king of kings, to Ezra the priest, the scribe of the law of the God of heaven, peace. And now I make a decree that anyone, anyone of the people of Israel or their priests or Levites in my kingdom who freely offers to go to Jerusalem may go with you. For you are sent by the king and his seven counselors to make inquiries about Judah and Jerusalem according to the law of your God which is in your hand. And also to carry the silver and gold that the king and his counselors have freely offered to the God of Israel, whose dwelling is in Jerusalem, with all the silver and gold that you shall find in the whole province of Babylonia, and with the freewill offerings of the people and priests, vowed willingly for the house of their God that is in Jerusalem. With this money, then, you shall with all diligence buy bulls, rams, and lambs, with their grain offerings and their drink offerings, and you shall offer them on the altar of the house of your God that is in Jerusalem. Whatever seems good to you and your brothers, do with the rest of the silver and gold that you, do, that you may do according to the will of your God. The vessels that have been given you for the service of the house of your God, you shall deliver before the God of Jerusalem. 
and whatever else is required for the house of your God, which it falls to you to provide, you may provide it out of the king's treasury. And I, Artaxerxes, the king, make a decree to all the treasurers in the province beyond the river. Whatever Ezra the priest, the scribe of the law of the God of heaven, requires of you, let it be done with all diligence. Up to 100 talents of silver, 100 cores of wheat, 100 baths of wine, 100 baths of oil, and salt without prescribing how much. Whatever is decreed by the God of heaven, let it be done in full for the house of the God of heaven, lest his wrath be against the realm of the king and his sons. We also notify you that it shall not be lawful to impose tribute, custom, or toll on any of the priests, the Levites, the singers, the doorkeepers, the temple servants, or other servants of this house of God. And you, Ezra, according to the wisdom of your God that is in your hand, appoint magistrates and judges who may judge all the people in the province beyond the river, all such as know the laws of your God. And those who do not know them, you shall teach. Whoever will not obey the law of your God and the law of the king, let judgment be strictly ex executed on him, whether for death or for banishment or for confiscation or, or of the goods or for imprisonment. Blessed be the Lord, the God of our fathers, who put such a thing as this into the heart of the king to beautify the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem and who extended to me his steadfast love before the king and his counselors and before all the king's mighty officers. I took courage for the hand of the Lord my God was on me and I gathered leading men from Israel to go up with me. Let's pray together. Father, we come to your word today and trust that you will use it to correct, to rebuke, to train in righteousness, to lead us to him who sits and stands at the center of your word, the Lord Jesus Christ. Unfold this word to us, Father, to our understanding and to our transformation, that you might be glorified in the way it is handled, you might be glorified in the way we pay attention to it, and we respond to it. Father, pour out your Holy Spirit's blessing on us, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. If you've been with us these past number of weeks, you'll remember that Ezra chapter 1 through 6 speaks about the first huge wave of Israelites that return from their Babylonian, now Persian, captivity. And in those first six chapters, we see they went with the express purpose to rebuild the altar of God so that proper worship of God could take place here in the Old Covenant, and also to rebuild the temple of God. And now as we come to chapter 7, we are to fast forward in our mind's eye about 57 years, about 60 years, when a second wave of exiles will return under the leadership of Ezra. Last week, we ended on a high note, didn't we? If you were here with us, we ended and we saw that they finally completed the temple and they were able to joyously, exuberantly celebrate the Passover feast that they hadn't been able to celebrate for so long as a result of their having been exiled. So between chapter 6, verse 22, and chapter 7, verse 1, there's a span of 57 years. What happened in those 57 years? Well, we're not told that much about it. We only have one book of the Bible that speaks to that 
part of Israel's history, the book of Esther. And there we see that that one potential tragedy was avoided by the good hand of God. For he raised up Esther for such a time as this. But apparently, within the people of God, having just 60 years or so earlier been joyously celebrating, wonderfully, authentically worshiping their God with great exuberance, they'd become stale and become complacent. They had given up on the joy that they had so many years ago. It appears that their accomplishment of finishing the temple, they thought, oh, well, all's well and good. We have the temple now. We're doing our regular feasts. We're engaged in our regular worship. The problem was that they were focused on the outward trappings of their religion. They were relying too much upon the building that they had dedicated 60 years earlier, rather than on the religion of the heart, which is what God is always all about. In one sense, he wasn't so concerned as much as the focal point of the first six, verse, first six chapters were about the temple. He was more concerned about what they did in the temple, that he had their hearts in the temple. But they were relying on the building itself. It'd be as foolish as us to think as, as if God cares when our sanctuary renewal project is done. Because he's not really concerned about the building. He's concerned about what happens in the building. And more than that, what happens to the hearts of those who are in the building. But these people had it wrong and so had become complacent and stale. Jeremiah tells us in his prophecy, chapter 7, he says this, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Amend your ways and your deeds, and I will, let, I will dwell in that place, in the temple. Do not trust in these deceptive words that apparently they were saying over and over. This is the temple of the Lord. This is the temple of the Lord. This is the temple of the Lord. God is not impressed with the temple of the Lord. God wants the focal point to be your heart. And Israel had lost its way. God wants to reach your heart too. And to reach mine. Even in these seats. Even right now. And the way he more often than not does that is through his word. And that's precisely why Ezra is sent here in the second wave of returnees to their home, to Jerusalem. Because people had the temple, but they had forgotten the word. And so Ezra here in verse 10, we're told, put his heart to studying the word of the Lord, not just studying it, but to do it and then to teach it. So you couldn't find a better person suited for this role to bring renewal to bring revival, to bring fresh joy to the stagnant people through God's word. And here we see that any movement of God amongst his people must be measured against the weight that is given to the word of God. Because all renewal, all revival comes from the word of God. And Ezra here is the man for the task. We meet Ezra, isn't it strange? well into his book. We're halfway through and we haven't been introduced to the man whose uh, the book is called. And he introduces himself here first with this lineage and then by describing his calling, what God had sent him to go do. Now, I don't know what you do when I get to a list of difficult names to pronounce. Uh, some of you zone out, for sure. Uh, some of you are wondering when he's going to slip up, and I did, forgive me, I did better at the eight. Um, but but these long lists of names, sometimes if it, if it causes you to zone out, let me just 
zone you in for a little bit and, and help us to appreciate that this is one of the longest genealogies given for one individual in the Old Testament. It's also one of the most impressive. And as is common in Old Testament genealogies, they're never intended to be comprehensive, as if to name every individual in Ezra's family tree. But they're selective, naming the most important, most significant, most memorable characters from his lineage. The goal really here in the list of these names is not to trip up the reader, but is ultimately to show us where Ezra comes from. And he comes from the line of Aaron. And that's the significant part because Aaron is the line from which the priests come. And so we're told here, we learned that the guy who this book is named after is a priest in the line of Aaron. But he's not just a priest, he's a scribe. He's an expert in the law of Moses. He is skilled in the law of Moses. Now you remember, we've seen that baked into this, this return is seen this kind of second exodus. You remember that's a motif that continues to come up. This is, a, in a sense, a repeat of what happened under Moses' leadership when they left Egypt, came through the Red Sea, and went to worship God in the wilderness. Now they're leaving Babylonia, and they're sent back to their homeland to worship God and to be restored and renewed by God's word. Here we see in this text another exodus, as you will. If you're not convinced yet, we're told here when they start their journey, the second wave, on the first day of the first month. You know what else happens on the first day of the first month? Moses' exodus. The first month in redemptive history, at least in the Old Testament, according to their calendar, lots of significant redemptive historical pivot points occur. When Noah opens the window of the ark and he looks out and he sees the, the land is dry, it's the first month. When Joshua crosses the Jericho River in conquest to conquer the land, as he turns around, it's the first month. That significant things of God's movement, of God's renewal, of God doing something new of God doing something transformative for his people happens in the first month. And here on this first day of the first month, we have a guy who is a priest. He is a scribe. He's a giver of the law, much like Moses. And so what better man could be found than Ezra, who is both priest, scribe, and teacher of the law, and doer of the law, to bring about a new beginning for his people. Kind of like the one who this is all about, the Lord Jesus, right? Who is the great high priest, who is an infinitely greater priest than Ezra ever was, whose lineage is eternal, who is a scribe, who is the giver and fulfiller of the law. What better person than the Lord Jesus Christ in his word can we find when we need renewal in our stagnant hearts? to bring about the joy of the worship that we talked about last week in the text. And he came to do this, that is Ezra, through God's word. And here is his calling, precisely that. Verse, verse uh, 7 through 10 tells us that this word was coming and being brought by Ezra to bring about a renewed holiness, a new obedience in Jerusalem. 
And so Ezra picks up with a bunch of people, priests and Levites and temple workers and servants and all the rest, and he takes this whole entourage from about, according to our calendar, April 8th to August 4th, the hottest part of the year. And he brings them there with this word of God in his hand. I don't know if he's really talking about like a physical copy, but the word of God in his hand is, a, is an idiom to say he knew it. It was in his heart, it was in his mind, it was in his lips, it was in his life. This man of God would come and God would use him to wake up a sleepy people who had forgotten the joy that was theirs 60 years earlier. So Ezra sets his heart to study the word of the Lord and to do it and to teach his rules and statutes. That's why Ezra was sent. If the first six chapters have at its focal point the temple of the Lord, the focal point in chapters 7 through 10 is the Torah. Temple, chapters 1 through 6, the Torah, the law of God in chapters 7 through 10. Now, while we know, because the text tells us three times, that all of this happens by the providential good hand of our good God, we're told that three times. It's the refrain of the text. It's also going to be the refrain of next week's text, too. By the good hand of our God. We see it as we read back in this text. But in real time, it would have appeared that all the credit went to the king of kings. Did you miss that? Artaxerxes names himself the king of kings. The audacity, that, hence our New Testament reading this morning, describing Jesus, the priest, the scribe, the lawgiver, as the only king of kings. And so here Ezra appears to be uh, functioning, if you will, as one preacher said, as like the secretary of state for Jewish affairs. He had a high role, a comfortable place, a comfortable lifestyle probably in Babylonia. And here he gets up in the hottest part of the month, takes this whole entourage to go back to renew the people by God's word. And so he's given this letter, sent with this letter to go and to reform the people according to the word of God. Did you see how many times? Make sure they go and obey it. Make sure they listen to the statutes. Go and teach them if they do not know it. Now what's going on here? Why would a king do that? Well, remember, Persia's way of running an empire was to send everyone back home, like they did for the Israelites, and go and worship their own God because they were nervous. They wanted to hedge their bets. They were covering all their bases. In case Yahweh, the God of Israel, is the really true God, you guys go because you know how to worship him. You have his word. You go and do that and tell the people to obey him because we don't want him to take us out. And all these other gods as well. So they were doing this not out of altruism, but to cover themselves. So essentially, Ezra is sent by this king, who calls himself arrogantly king of kings, to go maintain stability in that part of his empire, in Jerusalem. Further proof that this is a second exodus is that he's told to set up magistrates and judges, just like Moses did in Exodus. And then we find here, that everything Ezra needs and anything Ezra wants, he gets from the hand of the king who has released him. He gives these lavish gifts. Let me just put it in, in our uh, metrics, in our measurements. Three and three quarters tons of silver, 650 bushels of wheat, 600 gallons of wine, and 600 gallons of oil. For a lazy, stagnant people, this is how God provides for them? So often I operate out of the system, out of the false understanding that God is a God of scarcity. 
when he is a God of abundance. Operate out, out of this, this upside down mentality that I must do something in order to earn his favor. And yet, we see here in a lazy, stagnant people, he comes and he just gives and gives. And it's that giving, that provision, that undeserved mountain of gifts and graces to them that changes them, that renews them. Isn't this how God always works? He gives the gifts and the grace first, and then he calls for obedience. It's not the other way around. We work not for acceptance of God, for the favor of God. We work from the acceptance of God in his grace. It is not our obedience that earns his favor. It is his favor that evokes obedience in us. And that's precisely what's happening here. So he sends them with all this gold and with all this silver. And if you're not convinced yet that this is a second exodus, the same thing happened with Moses. Do you remember? They plundered the Egyptians and took all their silver and brought it. Same thing. Because God's doing a new work amongst his people and he's using this one man who is a priest, who's a scribe, who's a giver of the law to reform them, to renew them, to refresh them according to the word of God. And he does it by pouring out an abundance of his love, his steadfast love, to a people who only knew emptiness, coldness, and distance from God. So that's what propels him in the last two verses to this wonderful song of praise. This is the first time we hear Ezra speak. It's the first time there are words that come from him. And this is what he says. Blessed be the Lord, the God of our fathers, who put such a thing into, this heart, into the heart of the king to beautify the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem and who extended to me steadfast love. Me. Steadfast love is that chesed in Hebrew. It is that covenant, loyal, merciful, gracious, unending, steadfast, love, mercy, favor, grace. Choose your, choose your word. They all get poured into that so that he might refresh his people. So there's praise on his lips because of the covenant fidelity of his God. He's the God of our fathers. He's always been faithful and he's reminding them through his word, uh, not only of his law, but of his promises, of the fulfillment of his law. God's proven faithful to Abraham, covenantally to Isaac and to Jacob. And he's showing his faithfulness to us just see it in his word. And then we see again, this, this subtle sovereignty. Subtle, not for us, because we're told several times, who has put such a thing in the heart of the king? Well, God has, because God can use even a guy who thinks he's the king of kings as his little pawn to do exactly what he wants, to make laws that do exactly what he wants so that his people could be refreshed and renewed hidden behind all the gyrations of Artaxerxes, stands the King of kings and Lord of lords to lavishly bless his people with amazing goodness. Amongst all the big shots in the Persian Empire, this little Judean named Ezra says, and upon me, his hand was upon me. There's no way Ezra could have done it alone without God's hand upon him. And so providentially, he says, I took courage, or I strengthened myself because the hand of the good of my good God was upon me. Now, as good and as necessary as these reforms were, 
as as important as it was that the second wave of exiles come under the leadership of Ezra to bring and renew the law of God in the life of the people of God was for them at that stage, still not enough. Still not enough. The Shekinah glory doesn't fill the temple. The word of God is still unknown and outside of them until the Lord Jesus Christ comes in his new covenant manner, in his new covenant power, and steps onto the scene of human history. And John 1 tells us, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father. The glory filled the temple when Jesus would come. And he would fill the temple and say, tear down this temple, speaking about his body. And three days later, I will raise it up. This Jesus, who is a prophet, who is a priest, who is the king, who is not only the giver of the law, the embodiment of the law, but the fulfiller of the law and the fulfiller of all God's promises that meet their yes and their amen in him. And in new covenant grace, he comes to show that his promises can be trusted, his promises can be believed as he sends his Holy Spirit and now the Spirit writes the law of God right in your heart, right where God wanted to deal with you in the first place and to deal with me in the, in the first place as well. As we recall what he said through Jeremiah, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. Here it is. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they will be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor or teach his brother saying, know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. There needed to be so much more than just faithful, courageous, sacrificial Ezra. There needed to be a great high priest who would write this law in our hearts as he has captivated your heart through his shed blood for you on the cross, to forgive you of all of your sins, even when you are wandering from him, even when you felt as cold as ice, even when he feels as distant as you can imagine, God in his love through his word, by his gospel, in covenant faithfulness and in covenant promises, comes and wants you to know that he is a God of abundance. And the more you drink by faith of those resources from his word, the more we'll find the joy of that worship that they had 60 years earlier. May it be so for us. Let's ask for his help. Father, thank you for your word. We thank you for helping us to navigate it. We pray that anything here today that was said that was not of your word would be forgotten. And everything that was true would be magnified by your spirit. Lord, write this law as you have upon our hearts. Teach us to, um, to know that it has been fulfilled and therefore give us the joy of seeking to follow you righteously because we bear righteousness that Christ has given. Oh, you are super abundant in grace and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And so we praise you 
is a great God, the King of kings, our God. And by the good hand, by your good hand, you do all things well. And we praise you for it. In Jesus' name, amen.